Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live.
it's there all along. It's just not available to you until you pay for the membership. And then all of a sudden, I can go to Live Fitness. Because I've paid for the membership. <laughs> Much of our Christian faith is being spent trying to escape our humanity. I'm going to say, I've been saying this lately, I'm going to say it again. Jesus came to make you human. Much of our faith, however, has been spent trying to escape our humanity, trying to become more spiritual, focusing on the life to come. But haven't we ever wondered in our great rapture stories if the whole point is for us to be together? Jesus said the prayer was that we would be in him and he would be in us like Jesus was in the Father and the Father was in Jesus. Haven't we ever wondered why if the whole point is for us to be together, why in our rapture story is he coming down with the kingdom while we go up? He passed Jesus in the sky. Hey, Jesus, where are you going? He's coming to earth with the kingdom and we're going to heaven. Does that make any sense? I think that seems awesome. And so if the idea is he's coming down with the kingdom and we're going up, isn't that strange? Further, we put so much of our faith as a dedication to the life of becoming more spiritual. And in doing so, we put a small importance on what it means to be human. When Jesus came into our humanity. While we seek to escape our humanity, to abandon embodiment, and to leave this world behind, the Creator becomes human. He's made into flesh and bones and joins us in this broken world. So I've been spent most of my life trying to become less human and more spiritual, or doing things that are considered spiritual in this life so they will pay off in another life yet to come. You see how this reality doesn't really make sense. It puts us against ourselves. Let me say that a different way. It puts you against the very image of God you were created in. While we seek to escape our physical limitations, avoid suffering, God limits himself, takes on human suffering and embraces the world as it is in order to transfigure all things by incarnate wisdom and sacrifice. By putting on flesh, Jesus actually consecrates. I'm going to say that again. By putting on flesh, Jesus consecrates it. By putting on humanity, Jesus calls humanity holy. Jesus is God's way of saying that humanity has been mixed with the divine the whole time. Jesus, God, I, I heard some really funny meme the other day. Has anybody ever heard of, is it, is it Kalinari? Is that right? In, in the Mexican village, it's Jesus. So you don't have to think hard. So the, uh, the, this Hispanic lady was talking to Jesse, and she said, uh, somebody was trying to explain Emmanuel, how Jesus came back and came flesh with Jesus. And they said, oh, it's like God incarnate. God with flesh. God with meat. Yes, that's exactly right. 
So when Jesus came as God incarnate, what we actually find is he came into that experience and it was God's way of saying that humanity has been mixed with the divine the whole time. It's not God's way of saying become less natural and more spiritual. We even use this in our language. We have the natural and the supernatural. How could we not feel that the supernatural is better than the natural? The word super is at the beginning of it. Supernatural. If you want to make something bigger at McDonald's, what do you size it? Super size it. Our whole framework is that the natural is in some way less than the spiritual or the supernatural. What I'm telling you is that's impossible because the whole thing is spiritual. Your humanity is spiritual. Your humanity is divine. God said it. That's why God says things like, I am the light of the world. And then he turns to you and says, you are the light of the world. Why? Because Jesus came to show us that our humanity has been spiritual the whole time. But we use certain language like supernatural. And further, we use John's language. And how many times have you heard this preached? That I must decrease that he might in, must increase. You ever heard that one? And what that means to us in most cases is that I must become less. Uh, it's a mantra of spirituality whereby I must myself, my own desires, my the big ones are emotions, man. The big ones are emotions. My emotions have to become less and I have to be more spiritual. That is not what that verse means. Period. It does not mean that your humanity needs to become less to, to, so that your spirituality can become more. First of all, if it is even a verse that's applicable to us in that way with that kind of language, um, it, it would not be in the way we use it. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, the great Walter Brueggemann, actually said it this way. We should read John the Baptist's lack of personal ambition into a way of living, relating, reconciling, and healing. Decrease what is greedy, what is frantic consumerism for the increase of simple life-giving sharing. Decrease what is fearful and defensive for the increase of life-giving compassion and generosity. Decrease what is fraudulent and pretentious for the increase of life-giving truth-telling in your voice. Truth-telling about you, your neighbor, about sickness and about our society and about what God came to do to heal us. Decrease what is hateful and alienating for the increase of healing, forgiveness, and finally, Life more abundantly. That is what it means for us to decrease so that humanity can expand. While we seek to escape the uncomfortable moments of dust and disease, while we avoid prisons and hospital wards and asylums, and even as we despise our race and accuse mankind of being born into sin. How many times have you heard that one? God 
sides with humanity against all of its accusers and despisers in Christ. God came to show you that you weren't born into sin in the first place. While we want to talk to walk away from confused and downtrodden, the different and the indifferent, even as we envy and hate the rich and often shun or keep at arm's length the desperate and needy. Notice both of those. The rich, very popular to pick on the rich, and we keep at arm's length the needy. While we revolve, um, excuse me, those whose politics are different than ours, God walks right into the company of all women and men and loves them without qualification or distinction. Trump supporters, Hillary voters, criminals, victims, ISIS fighters, Israel, corporate polluters, abortionists, bankers, immigrants, hunters, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and the Tiki Torch crowd. Pick your enemy. God has reconciled all to them is, God says there is no substitute. When you come as a patient, or excuse me, to a patient enduring peace with your embodied limitations, when you embrace humanity in all it sometimes is difficult with, but the wondrous diversity that comes with it, when you revere and love creation, not longing for the disembodied rapture or seeking the equivalent of some far, far, excuse me, I I should start over again, seeing galaxies far, far away, which is where we think we're going, right? Where's heaven? Well, it's in a galaxy far, far away. You know what Jesus said? Heaven is in you. It's in you breaking out. When you do this, you have begun to plant your feet firmly in the soil of redemption and reconciliation. Remember, planting our feet in the soil of here and now reconnects us with the original design of creation and redemptive story in the first place. When we learn to be here, we recognize that the Bible story starts here and ends here. Genesis 1.1, God creates what? Here. Gen- uh, Revelation 22, at the end of the Bible, new heaven earth, new Jerusalem, where? Here. But why do we want to start the whole Rosanna thinks we're going anywhere? So we're going to look this morning at what it really means for us to begin to speak the gospel that the word became flesh And we have to remember that the birth of Emmanuel came in a cave filled with livestock. It came in the midst of difficulty. It came for even the first few years. Jesus, the Christmas story was not a happy story. Be honest. It was a story of people who had nowhere to go. And what I have to remind us is we cannot mistreat the homeless on Saturday and come and worship the homeless on Sunday. Because what does it say about Jesus? The Son of Man has what? 
no place to lay your head. You cannot um, attack refugees on Monday and come worship in uh, and enjoy a refugee experience. That doesn't work that way. You do realize when the Bible says that we're to embrace strangers old and new testament times the only definition of that word is immigrant or refugee and jesus actually says the way you embrace the immigrant and the refugee is the way you embrace the stranger now how that works in your real life that's for you to figure out but we cannot attack and vilify those who probably most closely reflect how our lord So Zephaniah 3.15 um, is, is our passage from the Old Testament today. We're going to hit this quickly. Zephaniah 3.15 is, uh, if you've ever read the book of Zephaniah, it's really dark. Uh, so I, I'm sure all of you, um, you know, just sit around reading the book of Zephaniah. Gloria Fenn is her favorite book in the Bible. She, she has the whole thing memorized. Uh, but for the rest of us uh, who maybe aren't as spiritual as Gloria is, what I have found is it's a pretty dark book. It's lots of nasty stuff about bad things that are going to happen and all this kind of stuff. It's written um, reflecting on the exile, the very literal exile that they were experiencing. But it, it rounds out in this incredible, what I think is one of the most beautiful passages about the Messiah coming that we find. And uh, Zephaniah 3.15 says, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared you, uh, excuse me, he cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it should be said to Jerusalem, which is essentially representative of the entire, what, what is, what's going to happen in the, begin, uh, in the end? New Jerusalem. So it's representative of everybody. Jesus is coming to make new Jerusalem of everybody. So it should be said to Israel, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord is in your midst, a mighty one to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his vengeance. Is that what he says? He will quiet you with what? He will exult over you with a loud song. I don't know what he sounds like. I really have no idea, but that's just my opinion. That's how when I hear Jesus sing, that's the voice he sings in. If you have a different voice for Jesus, you use that voice. Some of you have an Al Green sounding Jesus. Some of you have a Tim McGraw sounding Jesus. I don't care if he is, uh, if, if he's singing, I won't cry face, okay? Because that, that would just be a little thing for people. But I don't care if he's singing about healing or if he's singing half Cherokee and Choctaw, my baby, she's a Chippewa. Whatever it is, he's singing, okay? Uh, and so... Uh, what you find is he's singing over us. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I, I read this and I thought, what's he going to do? He's going to save the lame. He's going to gather the outcast. Why do we always think that's us? Why in the world does the richest, most powerful nation in the entire world 
ever, not right now, ever. We are the richest nation that has ever been, ever, 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 ever. And yet somehow we think that we're picked on and oppressed because Starbucks won't put baby Jesus on a cup. And so then when we, for whatever reason, because somebody decides to put Merry Xmas because for some reason it's like, oh, I don't know, shorter. Uh, and, um, And then all of a sudden we're being picked on and we are now the oppressed that God has come to save. That's not how it works. Who he was writing to was a group of people who had been suppressed. He was writing to children who they say that at the time he was writing that most of the children that were alive at that time, um, they were probably in mid-adults because they were in captivity, you know, several hundred years. So most of them never knew their parents because when the Babylonians came to get them, they slaughtered all the adults after they had starved them so badly that mothers were literally eating their children. Okay? So oppressed is not is my homeboy t-shirt to work. Oppressed is something much deeper. And those are the ones he's getting at. He says further, Behold, I will deal with the oppressors. Now, the oppressors are not people that pick on Christians. are not Muslims. The oppressors are not Republicans or Democrats. The, Repub- or the, uh, the oppressors are not uh, atheists. The oppressors are not for God's sake, the oppressors are not the Pope. I have heard for years that the reason you had to wear that hat was to hide the Sistine Church that's right underneath you. Okay? So, that's not the case. You know what the those that are the oppressors are? He goes on to um, to clarify that, but but frankly, the oppressors are the greedy, the powerful, those that manipulate other people to earn their money, those that try to dominate and control the system, those who want save the land and gather the outcasts and bring the strangers and slaves whom you now own in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. At that time I will gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth and I will show your fortunes with them, declares the Lord. The thing that's really interesting is this uh, verse is much like a lot of the Old Testament, specifically the minor prophets, in that it's defined by being the day of the Lord. Has anybody ever heard that term before, being the day of the Lord? Or in some cases we'll even say the day of the vengeance of our God. Sometime we'll do some conversation about how the, uh, how the translators uh, added the word vengeance in there. But that's probably about all you need to know. Because 
What they didn't understand was that the day of the Lord is not just a day where God's angry because what they thought was God was angry. He's going to come with a sword. He's going to wipe people out. There's going to be, in fact, if you read Revelation, you take it literally. James, don't go home and do this because I want you to have a good rest of your day. But it talks about that there's blood to the horse's bridle because God's coming to slaughter some folks is what we say. Let me just say unequivocally, God never, ever, ever, ever does or condones violence, period, ever. So what you have to recognize is the day of the Lord means this. It's the day of great reversal. So the way that they would have read the day of the Lord is it's a day when a reversal happens. It's a two-sided coin. That's what the day of the Lord is. And it's a very, very, very important theme because Israel had always been oppressed. So Israel was not at that point coming from the same vantage point we are. We're coming from, if you really want to know nationalistically speaking, we're coming from a vantage point of Babylon. We're the oppressor. As a country, we're the rich and powerful. And I'm not, and I'm, dude, I'm not even getting into whether we're a godly nation. Like, yay, we would rabbit trail quickly. But what I do have to say is we're not Israel. Israel had been taken from their home. They were oppressed. The boot of empire was on their neck. And so for us as a rich and powerful country, it's very hard for us to be able to relate to these passages in a way that makes sense. The day of the Lord was a great reversal whereby those that were greedy and oppressive and, and uh, powerful, the Lord causes them to be made humble. And he takes the poor and the humble and he lifts them up. That's what the day of the Lord is. Well, what is the day of the Lord that Zechariah is talking about? Jesus. So that's the idea. Jesus is the one who comes. The idea of this is there will be a new king and a new kingdom, and it's not going to be defined by greed or power or control or lust for more. It will be defined by sacrifice of self and a love that likes to look past all of our fear. John speaks of this day in the prologue with this incredible language. He says in John 1, 9, the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the world. He created, but the world didn't recognize him. Why didn't the world recognize him? Because he didn't come like Jesus. He didn't come like Alexander Taxilla. And so the world didn't recognize him. But all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. They are reborn, not with physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Now, here's where it gets really fun. So the word of God became human. Jesus is the word of God. When God wanted to show you what how you should think about yourself, how you should see yourself, what you should think about who you are and how God sees you. Does God become spiritual? Does God become supernatural? God became human. And he didn't become human that was rich. He didn't become human that was lofty. He didn't become human that had lots of power, prestige, or a palace. He became human that had nothing. He became human that didn't even have a place to sleep. He became human that was rejected from the time of his birth until the time of his death. He came to show us that from the lowest common denominator all the way up, everybody is in. Because human has been his intent the whole time. So, he 
full of his uh, unfailing love and faithfulness, as we have seen, the glory of the glory of the Father and and only Son. The Word in this Scripture becomes human and dwells among us to identify with us and to assume fully what we are so that he can translate and transform a broken people into his image. Or as St. Irenaeus, and I'm not saying this, I'm quoting one of the fathers of the church here, Jesus Christ, in his infinite love, has become what we are in order that we can become in our eruption phase. God turned the divine thing into the human so that the human could be the divine. The word became flesh is the first act in bringing healing to humanity in the entire creation. This assumption of the flesh opens the door for others to partake by the grace of God in his very nature. God becoming man provides a window for his light to shine into the darkness of our pain, expose our woundedness, shares in our suffering, and embraces us in his presence, which itself is healing and transforming. This is a deeply important truth to our faith. Jesus is not half God, half human. There, we have spent literally four centuries trying to explain how this works, and we still don't know. Jesus isn't half God, half human. Like a, like a minotaur or some type of mythological creature. That's not how Jesus works. What you actually find about Jesus is that the confession that we have is that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And what we oftentimes don't like to really recognize is while Jesus was fully God, he walked around with Mary's DNA. He walked around with human DNA. Why? His humanity reflected God's image the whole time. So what we begin to find is that in the church, we, I, I made this note, I thought this was a good way to say this. The church has been attempting to explain this for centuries, and we're still working on it. Christianity is a confession of faith, not an explanation of understanding. Christianity is a confession of faith, not an explanation of understanding. And we will always confess more than we can explain. We don't have to understand how it happened. We just have faith that it happened. And so we still confess that Jesus is God and Jesus is human. Jesus is as God as God can be and still as human as human can be. Jesus came into our entire humanity to show us that the image of God is our humanity. So if we are trying to figure out what God looks like through 31,000 individual Bible verses, there's 31,000, don't ask me why. There's 31,000 verses in there. If we are trying to figure out what God is like or looks like through 31,000 individual Bible verses, you are misusing the Bible, and you will ultimately come up with a lot of wrong and contradictory ideas about God. So what should we do? Should we throw it away? Of course not. Of course not. What we do is we let the Bible do what it's intended to do. You let the Bible bear witness to Jesus. You let the Bible bear witness to Jesus. You allow the scriptures to point us to Jesus, and then you interpret the Bible through the lens of Jesus, 
not Jesus through the lens of the Bible. Man, I would argue that is a good application. You don't interpret Jesus through the lens of the Bible. You interpret the Bible through the lens of Jesus. Anything that the Bible says, uh, is the way you say it anyway, right? Anything that the Word of God says about God has got to bow its knee to the Word of God named Jesus that came in the flesh and what he showed us about him. You know, the problem is people would say with this kind of language, we don't believe in the word. I absolutely believe in the word. The only difference is now, according to the Bible, I believe that the word of God at the age of 18 grew a beard. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the word. So what you find is in John's prologue, that's what he was speaking about. To dwell among us to suffer with us on this deeper level. That's what John is trying to say as he came into our humanity. We then see what God is like because when God lives among us as Jesus, we finally see God correctly. When a person experiences a physical healing or an emotional one, they're experiencing what Jesus afforded when he assumed our humanity. They're experiencing the healing that came through Jesus. Because in that way, heaven united with earth. In that sense, the incarnation is very much about God becoming fully man. But on a deeper level, his incarnation was for a way for us to truly become as human as Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I'd like to read the beginning of the prologue one more time. Uh, this time using John's later definition of the word love. So John in the uh, epistles, first, second, third John, we're almost done, uh, uses this language that God is what? Love. Okay? So let's read about what John had to say in the Gospels using that language. In the very beginning, love was already there. And love was with God, yet love was God. They were together face to face in the very beginning and through creative inspiration, this love made all things. For nothing has existed apart from love. Life came into being because of love. For love's life is light for all humanity and love is the light that bursts through the gloom. The light that the darkness can't reach. God's essence is love. And the word essence means plus nothing else. If his essence is love, that means that he is love plus nothing else. How many times have you been talking to people and you've been telling them, no, 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 God is love. God is love. And they're like, well, yes, but he's also holy. Or you've been talking to somebody like, oh, yes, God is love, but he's also righteous. God is love, but he's also uh, justice. That's a really good one. People like that one a lot. He's, he is love, but he's also just, and so he can't stand for your sin. God has no buts. God is love plus nothing else. There are no buts. It's not love, but he's also holy love, but he's also righteous love, but he's also justice. God has no buts. God is love, period. 
And the only way you'll ever understand his holiness, his righteousness, or his justice is through the demonstration of his love. It's only through love that holiness can be understood. It's only through love that righteousness can be understood. It's only through love that justice can be understood. Because it's we think it's the yin and yang of God. So God can't be too lovey-dovey, so he's got to have this, this justice over here just to offset him a little bit. Like a husband and wife, you know, one's always worried about, you know, making sure everybody's happy, and the other one's making sure that the yard's mowed, you know? Well, uh, you feed the kids, I'll mow the yard, that's God's love and justice. That's not how it works. God is love, trust nothing else. In fact, one theologian said this, love is the godness of God. It's the godness of God. So love is not really the thing. It's our uh, uh, bam, bam. I'm closing here. Eli, I'm closing here. Uh, love is not really an action that you do. Love is what and who you are. Love is not just an action that you do. It's what and who you are. Because if we are created in his image and his essence is love, love is your same way that, it's going to be weird, in the same way that love is the godness of God, love is the humanness of Jesus. Love is a place that already exists inside of you that is greater than you. That's the paradox. It's within you and yet it's beyond you. This creates a sense of abundance and more than enoughness, which is precisely the satisfaction and deep peace you will It is your true self, your humanity, your true self is God's love because his image is your essence. Jesus says clearly the greatest expression of love is to lay down our life for our neighbor. Unfortunately, most of Christianity finds this idea completely unattractive. A self-sacrificing love for most Christians sees other Most people are really cool with Jesus coming into heaven. They just think it's priceless. So what actually should happen is that we ignore it. Jesus is rather clear on the teaching of love of enemies. And yet that's been constantly ignored by all of humanity. Christians. But Jesus showed us. He climbed into our humanity not to show us how to be spiritual, but to show us how to be human and that our humanity is spiritual. One of the fathers said it this way, Jesus became human so that our humanity could be divine. What I have found about this love is the more I practice it, the better I become at it. The more natural the supernatural actually becomes. If it isn't radical, it probably isn't love. If the love you give isn't radical, So we don't just love those that look like us. We don't love those who uh, think like we think, vote like we vote, live where we live. We love those who don't. We love those who are on either side of the party. We love those who are poor and those who are greedy. 
hate you so thoroughly. You love the Pharisees and you love the saints. And when we do this, we look like God because we look like God. I'm learning uh, to, to do this uh, and, and bless my enemies. Um, it's been a new practice for me. Here, a, par- a portion of my day, I actually spend uh, every day a few minutes by name blessing those who have done things that are wrong to me. Um, and uh, it's, it's not the easiest thing to do, uh, especially on days when I'm kind of doing wrong things to them. Uh, it's very quickly to, to want to do things other ways. Well, the easiest thing to do is I come up with other names for them, none of which I will teach them in the pulpit. Um, but uh, euphemisms, if you will. Um, and, um, you know, what I really have found, though, is um, I just pray this. Lord, judge them with the same mercy that I want for myself. Judge them with the same mercy that I want. I believe Jesus, when he said we are judged by the measure with which we judge ourselves, I want the feather and not the hammer. So I ask God to give them the feather too. But more than that, I need them. They are beloved enemies of my ego to assist me in working out my salvation by crucifying the stuff in me that my friends don't have the nerve to attack. They sharpen me where I'm sloppy and nuance things where I'm crass and sculpt my character where it's still immature. I don't like them, but I absolutely need them. I have blessed them and prayed for them, and I wish and hope that they pray for me. Seeing as more than likely we'll spend eternity together in heaven. So my prayer is that we love better. And the way that we demonstrate that love better is mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So today, I think that that is, that's the vantage point of Jesus, that from the cross he says, Father, forgive them, even in the moment of pain. So today on this Love Sunday, on the, in this Love Week, uh, I'd like to invite all of us to, at some point this week, if not later, spend a few minutes blessing by name, asking for mercy by name for ones who hurt me. Because I want that in me. I want to be judged by that way. And so it's, it's within me needed that I ask for vengeance. Because he's not wanting us to endure this life and then enjoy heaven and be really good, loving, wonderful people when we get there. It's all about God. Jesus saved you for here and now. Not for heaven. Because heaven's already inside of you and it's already secure. So as this week we... Uh, we close our Advent week. I'd like to remind you that starting on Christmas, we celebrate, we party, party. So I'd like to ask this. 
I don't want, during the 12 days of Christmas, nobody wears black. I want bright colors. I deal with it. Figure it out. Okay? And I'm not saying you can't have any black on. I'm just saying you can't. I want even our clothing. We have an easy time when it's time to fast and we all wear black and we mourn, right? Well, there's Jesus literally said, you don't mourn while the bridegroom is with you. You feast. You don't fast. The bridegroom is coming. The, the bridegroom is coming and you, it's time to feast and celebrate and be a party. And I don't do any of that. I live in what we wear, what we say, what we do. Okay? So, Father, we love you. We thank you. You are amazing. There, this, this love is, it is only by grace. <laughs> and we thank you that it is extended to us regardless of if we even know it or not. We ask you that you would lead us, that you would bless this time with our families. Father, specifically be with those who struggle in the holidays. There are many people for which the holidays are not a happy time. They're not an easy time. They're not a, a, even a, a, a joyful time. Father, specifically be with them and allow people to be around them that are sensitive to that and that also in some way bring them peace. That we would be ministers of God's kingdom peace, of me, of, of, of ambassadors of it. And Lord, um, cause us to be a people as we come into this Christmas season that we rejoice well and that we also lift up well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you all. God bless you. Merry, merry, merry Christmas. Uh, I will, on Christmas Day, so that's Tuesday, I'm going to do a short uh, live stream just via Facebook, just me kind of sharing a Christmas message in the morning. Uh, that way you can watch it on your phone or you can watch it later via Facebook or wherever you go for it. Um, and uh, I hope to love you. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.